The time has come to get ready for the 2022 World Cup. And what better way to prepare than by revisiting the World Cup's most amazing goals? I'm Brian Phillips. I'm making a podcast about the history of the Men's World Cup, told through the stories of 22 iconic goals. The show's called 22 Goals. It's out now on the Ringer Podcast Network, and we're having so much fun. It's the Ringer Gambling Show, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back, and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus, and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome into the Ringer Gambling Show. It's Austin Gale with Warren Sharp. Every single Wednesday, make sure you tune in to the Ringer Gambling Show across the network, though. Raheem Palmer, House, JJ, all getting after it. The East Coast Bias Show is fantastic, but you're going to love this one with me and Warren. Games to highlight today, Warren. Jets at Patriots, Cowboys at Vikings, Bears at Falcons, and Bengals at Steelers. I think this is a good week of games, Warren. It was hard for me to pick. I don't know. I, I usually pick the games. I send it to you via text at night. You were like, I like these. Any games I left out? Anything Anything you're missing in this lineup? No, I'm interested to see the Lions try to go on the road again against the Giants, play outdoors again, and see how they do there and see if the Giants can 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 notch another win. I think they got a little bit fortunate against the Houston Texans last week, given the Texans got into the red zone six times. Um, but other than that, you know, I think you got the best ones. We are also looking forward to seeing some of these primetime games. I think the Chiefs Chargers and 49ers Cardinals are going to be great. But uh, the other pods on this network are, are on this uh, schedule that you just listed are going to dive deeper into those. So for the Sunday day slate, I think you picked four of the best. Tune into tomorrow's podcast where Raheem and I go over Thursday night football every single week. Titans at Packers is another Big game. Uh, I, I think that one's going to be a fantastic one to see Mike Vrabel go into Lambeau and take on a Green Bay Packers team that's finding life down the stretch. Now their playoff odds are still very low. It's at 12% according to 538. But if they win in Tennessee, those odds move up to 21%. So who knows? Green Bay Packers could be on the rise. We'll see where the Packers end up at the end of the season. Where I want to get to and where I want to start is a playoff, uh, not a playoff game, but a game with a lot of playoff leverage or playoff 
probability on the line. The the Jets going to New England as a three and a half point dog this week. Both teams coming off a of bye in week 10. Jets are six and three. Patriots are five and four. They played in late October, October 30th. Patriots won on the road against the Jets 22-17. That's where Zach Wilson threw over for, for, for over 300 yards, but had like some of the worst interceptions I've ever seen. And those turnovers ultimately cost them that game. Patriots win 22-17. They couldn't run the ball in that game either. This game specifically, Jets at 6-3 and three have had a really successful season compared to preseason expectations. Patriots trying to climb back into the playoff race. According to 538's playoff projections model, the Jets right now have a 59% chance of making the playoffs ahead of the game. If they lose, those chances drop to 44%. And if they win, those chances go from 59% to 89%. 30% jump if they do win this game on the road against New England as a three-and-a-half-point dog. For the Patriots, right now their odds are 39%. With a win, it moves to 53%, and a loss drops them to the depths of hell at 18%. So this is largely a playoff game. For New England, right? Going down to 18% after this win, it'll be hard for them to claw back into the postseason race, especially with one of the hardest remaining schedules in the league. And for the Jets, this isn't necessarily a playoff game. Their odds only drop to 44%. They'll still have a chance to make the playoffs, even with the loss. But man, it's a big swing if they can get a win in New England. I, I, I think this is one of the games that people should be keying on this week because it is not a playoff game for the Jets and Patriots, but it has massive, massive impact on whether these two teams will go to the playoffs. It does. Um, and I think one of the biggest, you know, the places that you would want to start when you're discussing this game is the, is the spread. Obviously, on a, a betting show, spread is vital. And we're looking at a team in the Patriots that's right now laying three points. And what's interesting is these teams both are off of a bye and they played each other one game prior to their bye. So they, they played in week not week eight. And then they had a week nine game against a different opponent. And then they had a week 10 bye. And now here we are in week 11. So the game in between the game that these two teams played, the Patriots beat the Colts and the Jets upset the Buffalo Bills. But if we look back the game that they played right before that one, it was the meeting between one another in week eight. And in that game was in New York. And the Jets were three-point underdogs. And here the Jets are three-point underdogs in Foxborough. So we're really talking about a massive downgrade in what the Patriots are because we're not adjusting the line at all. The line is basically the same. Three in New York, and now it's three at home. And it makes very little sense to me that the New York Jets you know, they they lost that game 22 to 17. The Patriots, obviously, I thought were fortunate in some cases in that last game, but they really have a sound defense against Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson is a very limited quarterback in general, but Bill Belichick has had a career track record of playing really well against him. Obviously, Belichick does well against rookies, and Zach Wilson was a rookie last season, but Belichick dominated him last season. He's done well against him this season. I was on the Patriots in their game against the Jets uh, earlier this year. And, you know, it's an interesting line. I'm not sure what you make of the fact that the Patriots, despite beating the Jets 22 to 17 and covering that three point spread in New York, and then coming home to beat the Indianapolis Colts soundly 26 to three. 
are now only laying three points, the same spread as before. They've they've done nothing to really make us feel like they are a worse team, dramatically worse team than what they were when they played these guys in week eight. How do you account for the fact that the Jets are still catching only three points here? My interpretation of that line, I think you're right to acknowledge that they were three-point favorites on the road, and now they're only three-point favorites at home. You're right to acknowledge that there isn't a bigger gap, even though I think on paper we haven't seen a worse Patriots team in recent weeks. I will say that Mac Jones has been awful over the last three weeks. Like, absolutely awful. Like (laughs) With... Bailey Zappi, I know it was only two games. Like the offense was objectively more efficient when Zappi was in there against worse defenses, whatever, small sample size, I don't care. I think as bad as Mac Jones has been, which I think there are only two quarterbacks in the NFL this year with a negative EPA per temp average throwing beyond the sticks. It's Kenny Pickett, who's a rookie, and Mac Jones, who's like really, really struggling in this Patriots offense. I think that is baked into this line, right? And the Jets' defense is good. Top five in any efficiency metric you look at. And I think Salah, with a bye week, will be prepared to slow down the New England Patriots and and, and limit this offense. The biggest biggest determiner in this game, I think, is very volatile, and it's turnovers. Will Zach Wilson, scrambling to his right, looking to throw a ball away, accidentally keep it in bounds and have it picked off? Will he throw it into triple coverage and have it picked off? Because that's what lost him the game last time. And I think that Zach Wilson is not objectively a different quarterback than what he was on October 30th, which is only a couple of weeks ago. But I do think over the bye week, Sala and this coaching staff could do a good enough job of hammering in, like, do not, do not throw the ball away. And when you look at the last game we saw Zach Wilson, that game plan they have for him where low average time to throw, get the ball out quickly, don't scr- when you're scrambling, throw the ball away. I think they have cracked, cracked his the the his play style a little bit. Now, I don't think a Tiger changes his stripes, but like when you look at the last game we saw Zach Wilson, he played a lot better because the offense was saying, get the ball out fast. It was the fastest average time to throw in a single game he's had all year. That similar game plan where he's getting the ball out quickly and not extending plays just to turn the ball over is a winning formula against the New England Patriots. Now, Belichick knows that. You know, <laughs> this Patriots team knows that. And I, I, I guess I just have more faith in, which is crazy to say out loud, I have more faith in New York after the adjustments that they made to avoid turnovers with Zach Wilson to not throw the game away against New England Patriots than I do with Mac Jones, who I don't think is throwing the game away by any means, but taking bad sacks, looks as unconfident as ever, can't throw the ball beyond the sticks. They're asking him to run screens and draws and all that stuff on third and longs because they don't trust him. I don't know. I, I, I think this game is, is, is more evenly matched as we go into this one because both quarterbacks are significantly limited and we're... We've seen, I think, more success from Zach Wilson, at least in this last game, than we have from Mac Jones. I don't think a lot has changed to give me confidence in Mac Jones. Do I give the coaching edge to Bill Belichick? Absolutely. But the defenses are both really talented. Jets are more talented. And the offenses are at the bottom of the league. One, I think, has shown more promise in recent weeks than, than Mac Jones and the Patriots. That doesn't necessarily tell me I want to bet Jets money line, especially on the road in Foxborough against Bill Belichick. But I do, if you can still get him at three and a half, with the hook, I, I I probably am leaning New York here with the hook. At three, you start to look at New England a bit more. But man, I don't know. I I, I think it's right for that line adjustment to have happened. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see. I am on the fence on whether or not I think the line adjustment is, is appropriate. But what I do know is that the public certainly is coming in and looking at this New York Jets team. And they're seeing them have played several teams, what, since week five, 
that are viewed as like good teams with good quarterbacks. They played the Buffalo Bills. They beat them. They played Aaron Rodgers, a good, well-known quarterback. They beat him. They played Russell Wilson, a well-known, good quarterback. They beat him. Obviously, we know both of those guys are struggling. They also beat and and really, you know, pasted the Miami Dolphins, even though the Dolphins weren't starting Tua. And so these, you know, you look back at kind of like the recent resume and those look like more impressive victories than what the New England Patriots have put together. And it really is shocking that um, as bad as Zach Wilson was, I think, last year, and then the lack of him taking a next step this year, that you would, and I wouldn't disagree, have a similar opinion that, like, do we actually trust Mac Jones less than Zach Wilson here? Because what is going on with Mac Jones? And we know that the offense kind of screwed him up a little bit. My, I normally would be going hard in on the New England Patriots here, knowing that it's off of a bye, and I trust this coaching staff a lot more to figure out what to do in this particular game against the Jets with two weeks to prepare. However, my concern this year that wasn't there in years past, even though Josh McDaniels has done terribly in uh, Las Vegas with the Raiders, is who's Mac Jones working with on the offensive side of the ball here that gives me confidence that like they've come up with a new strategy that's actually going to work. I don't trust this coaching staff at all on the exactly. offensive side of the ball. So I don't know that they're going to come up with some sort of plan that says, okay, hey, yeah, you know, you we, we beat the Colts and we beat the Jets last time, but that really was because of our defense, not our offense. And when we needed our offense against a terrible defense like the Chicago Bears back three weeks ago in week seven, the offense wasn't there. And so what is, you know, Mac Jones going to do in this game to kind of rectify his performance from the last two games where he's played poorly against decent defenses. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do to change things differently. You look at this roster that the Patriots have. They're spending more on tight ends this year than any other team in the NFL. It's not even close. And yet you add the two tight ends together and they're not even, I want to say, top 10 in total yards or in total catches. I mean, I don't know why they spend so much money on these tight ends and they aren't even utilizing them. Uh, it's really mind-boggling what this New England Patriots offensive staff is trying to do with this team. And then the team's execution is poor. There are simple things that could be fixed, but I don't know that they're going to get fixed here. And for that reason, a lot of variance for this for me in the result of this game. The roster building is an entirely, you know, almost like an entirely different podcast. Like, the, yeah. like what the what the Patriots did last offseason, or I guess two offseasons ago, was absurd in, in, in paying as much as they did for John o. Smith and Hunter Henry and Kendrick Bourne. All these guys that like are objectively not living up to the paychecks that they received, and not even being factored in wholesale into the offense. Like when we when we saw them. I remember exactly the day in March where the Patriots grabbed John Smith and Hunter Henry and made them two of the highest paid tight ends in the NFL. I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to run 12 and 13 personnel all day long. It's going to be Hernandez Gronk levels of usage. We haven't seen that at all. Like these guys barely see the field and have had very little success in signing in New England. I mean, that's two of the worst, two of the worst free agent signings we've seen in recent years in terms of usage and how they're even being leveraged and obviously production. You are right to call out though. Who is, is it Matt Patricia? Is it Joe Judge that's going to help 
Mac Jones out of the depths of hell right now. He's the lowest ranked quarterback in EPA per dropback. He's the lowest ranked quarterback in EPA per dropback throwing beyond the six. He's the lowest ranked quarterback in EPA per dropback or attempt throwing 10 yards downfield. Like, he doesn't have it this year. He is in an offense that is not catering to his skill set. The Jets know that. And I don't see him massively improving under a Patricia Judge-led revolution uh, in New England. Whereas with Zach Wilson, 2.13 average time to throw. 2.13 seconds average time to throw in that Bills win. It's hard to throw picks when you're throwing the ball that fast. Really hard. Really hard to throw picks because you're just getting the ball, getting to your drop, and throwing it. And if he's open, he's getting it. And if he's not, you're, th you're throwing it away or, or you're dumping it off or checking it down or whatever it is. In the games where Zach Wilson's average time to throw is 2.75, three seconds, that's where chaos ensues. You go to that Patriots game, Zach Wilson had an average time to throw of like 3.4 seconds because he was scrambling around, trying to create, and that is when Belichick will get you. That is when chaos and, and, and negative plays ensue, and that's what's been the worst of Zach Wilson since he's entered the NFL. I think that it's a one-game sample size, but it's a big win over a good Buffalo Bills defense. And I think that's going to allow... LaFleur and Wilson to really hunker down and, and, and trust this game plan of limiting limiting these extended plays and limiting the chaos um, out of it. But that doesn't mean that Belichick doesn't know that and he's going to adjust as well. So I like taking the Jets at plus three and a half. I think that when getting it to three or if it gets to two and a half, I probably stay away from this game if more money continues to pour on the Jets. But I like the Jets if you can still find numbers at plus three and a half near minus 110, minus 105, or wherever it may be. That's, that's, that's my official stance on this one. Next game, Cowboys at Vikings. This one is weird, man. I was talking to Jason Goff, the, my, my co-host on the Ringer NFL show, and I was like, Jason, I know you haven't looked at the line yet. Vikings are at home against the Cowboys. What do you think this line is? Who do you think's favoring? What's the line? He's like, Vikings by four and a half. If you listen to the Bill Simmons podcast, I think even Bill Simmons and Sal had said that this line should probably be Vikings favored by three, Vikings favored by four. Instead, we have the Cowboys favored by one and a half on the road. On multiple books. Minus 110 either side. Make sense of this, right? Should the Vikings be favored at home over the Dallas Cowboys, especially after a stinker against the Green Bay Packers the previous week for Dak Prescott, where... He's looked as bad as he's ever looked in that game. Multiple picks right to the chest of defenders, whereas the Vikings are coming off a heroic win over the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo, where Justin Jefferson ascended to the tops of the league. I think it's Tyreek Hill 1, Justin Jefferson 2 right now in terms of the, receiver, the best receivers in the NFL. Tyreek Hill, Justin Jefferson, you could even call it 1A, 1B. Both those receivers are insane. Him to show up in clutch and, and make that reception on fourth and 18. And even after that, multiple receptions deep into the fourth quarter, multiple receptions deep into overtime to help win that game. He's different. He elevates the offense. An offense that's hamstrung by limited quarterback play in Kirk Cousins. Then you have Dalvin Cook busting off a monster touchdown run against a good Buffalo Bills defense where everything was perfectly blocked. So Minnesota Vikings coming off a big win. Cowboys coming off a big loss. And yet we have here Vikings one-and-a-half-point dogs at home. Do you expect Bunny to come in on the Vikings as we get closer to kick? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure the way the public is going to fall here. Let me look at some of the current splits um, based on some of my numbers here. And it actually it does look like the money, the public is on the Minnesota Vikings here. So I would expect this line to, I don't think this line is getting to two or higher. If anything, I think it would come lower just because of the amount of public volume being that this is a late game on the day on Sunday afternoon. 
But what I think is really interesting, I know it's just a one-game sample for each team, but how much different is the perspective if we just ended each of the last games, the last week's games, the Vikings playing uh, the Buffalo Bills and the Dallas Cowboys playing the Green Bay Packers, if we just ended those games at the end of the third quarter, right? At the end of the third (laughs) quarter, the Dallas Cowboys were up 28 to 14 on the road in Green Bay. And the Buffalo Bills were up, what is the score here? Uh, 14, 17, 27 to 17. And I think that at one point it was 27 to 10, but the Vikings scored three, seven points late in that third quarter. 27 to 10, 27 to 17, uh, the Vikings were trailing the Buffalo Bills. And obviously the perspective changed massively when the Buffalo Bills end up dropping that game at home. And if you look at some of the statistics here on what the Minnesota Vikings were doing in this game, I mean, it's it's absolutely patently absurd, like to a non-repeatable level. Uh, the Minnesota Vikings in the first half were minus 0.20 EPA per play, 5.7 yards per play, whereas the Bills were plus 0.22 EPA per play and 7.1 yards per play. You can extend it to the third quarter and it doesn't meaningfully change. On early downs in the second half and overtime, so now we're talking about the comeback, the Minnesota Vikings comeback in the second half and overtime. On early downs in the second half and overtime, their average EPA per play was negative 0.00, which means like it doesn't get rounded up to the 100 spot, but it's still below zero, uh, just not a high enough decimal. They were below average EPA per play on early downs in the second half. It was completely third and fourth downs in the second half and overtime where they were at plus 0.60 EPA per play and got back in the game. And in large part, it was because Josh Allen was throwing those red zone interceptions, multiple ones that allowed this team to ultimately get back in the game and win the game. Um, Yeah, I was surprised that the Green Bay Packers had the level of efficiency and were able to run the ball against Dallas. And Dallas was using Micah Parsons in a very strange manner last week, and they weren't blitzing a lot, and they weren't getting hardly any pressure. And it seemed like that that was such a major mismatch, the Cowboys' defensive line versus the Packers' offensive line. And instead, the Packers were able to protect Aaron Rodgers, allow him to complete some of those deep shots uh, down the sideline, and... That obviously was what got the Packers back into this game, but I really feel like the recency bias of that ultimate final score versus what we saw over the first three quarters is swaying a lot of the public perspective in this game. I know Dak didn't have a great game with the interceptions, but I don't think that that's bankable to happen in this spot. I believe that the Vikings defense is a little bit overrated on the season. Um, And... Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Cowboys strategize to approach this game. But I think that they should have a little bit of success on early downs. Since Dak returned in week seven, the Cowboys are number two in EPA per play on early downs. And they're tied with the Miami Dolphins, in fact, uh, over that stretch. So, uh, you know, I- I'm I'm just not so sure that the Cowboys aren't able to produce offensively they went into minnesota you know last year and granted they had cooper rush at the time but they were able to do enough offensively even in that game uh and their defense was pretty good there and so that's really where this lies to me is 
is we know the the biggest matchup to me in this game, Austin, is the defensive line of the Dallas Cowboys and how often they're able to get pressure on Kirk Cousins because that will decide this game, in my opinion. Kirk has massive splits with pressure, without pressure. I really think that the Minnesota Vikings, if they want to give themselves the best chance to win this game, need to pass a lot more on first down as opposed to run the ball more. Dallas has been very good against 11 personnel running back runs on first downs, but has been very bad against passes on first downs from 11, and they don't like to blitz a lot in those situations. Their blitz rate when defenses have heavier personnel on first downs, they're at basically a 60% blitz rate. But when defenses are using 11, when offenses are using 11 personnel, Cowboys are only blitzing at a 24% rate, and it's a lot easier for the quarterback to get rid of the ball and see where he wants to go with it. And I absolutely think that the Vikings would be best suited to come up with a pass-first approach on first downs from 11, spread out the defense to try to have efficiency. Because if you get into this game where you're behind the chains against this defense and you're trying to throw the ball on second and third and long situations, obvious pass situations, I don't think you're going to fare nearly as well. Which is where the Packers were, right? Everyone brings up that the Packers won that game at home, but you're right to call out that they were they were losing 28-14 when Christian Watson caught that touchdown on fourth and seven, right? Like, like, like there was a there was a big play, that was a big moment into like shifting the tides of that game for the Green Bay to come back into it. And for, da- for Dallas, I thought, what was most concerning about that approach was how well the Green Bay Packers attacked the edges of the defense, the Cowboys defense, with running the football. It was clear that they were going to run outside the tackles a ton and force the defensive backs to tackle consistently in that game. And they had success doing it with, with A.J. Dillon, with uh, Aaron Jones. You saw in that game, I believe, Anthony Brown, the starting outside corner opposite of Trayvon Diggs, leave the game with a concussion. In goes Kelvin Joseph. And... He really struggled in coverage, and he really struggled defending the run on the edge. And I think the Green Bay Packers were smart to identify that as a weakness, as the defensive back struggling to fit the run and all that stuff. I think the Minnesota Vikings are going to see that too, and Dallas needs to prepare for that. But honestly, how they win this game, Vikings versus Cowboys defense, is you're right. Throwing the ball when the Cowboys aren't blitzing and aren't getting pressure. I will say that this Minnesota Vikings offensive line has proven to be one of the top units specifically in pass protection all season. Christian Derrissaw, the left tackle, is phenomenal. You have Ezra Cleveland there playing at a very high level as well. The, the offensive line, in my opinion, is not anywhere near the concern. It's more how often are you throwing the ball in early downs? How often are you getting ahead of schedule and creating explosive on early downs to avoid these obvious passing situations? That's where Kirk Cousins and this Minnesota Vikings offense gets themselves in positions where they have to convert a fourth and 18 to win a game, right? And that you don't want to be in that situation over and over and over again. It's fun. It's great to win one score games. It's fun. It's great to come from behind and win these games in the fourth quarter. But consistent dominance where you're leading games deep into the fourth quarter and not looking at ESPN's win probability model and seeing you have a 1% chance to win with like 10 minutes remaining in the fourth. Like you don't want to be in those situations consistently. The coin is not always going to flip your way every single time. So for Minnesota's offense specifically, getting ahead of the chains, creating explosives on early downs and having high EPA and early downs is the winning formula every single week, not even just against the Dallas Cowboys. They got to do it every single week. And I think doing that by throwing on early downs, specifically at 11 personnel, you're, you're right to highlight you know, the blitz differences between heavy personnel and, 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 and light personnel for Dallas. That is the winning formula. Looking at the other side of the ball, where do you see edges for Dak Prescott and this Dallas Cowboys offense versus a Minnesota Vikings defense that I think you hinted at is maybe a bit overrated. 
uh, going into this game. I think they're middle of the pack in terms of efficiency, middle of the pack in terms of yards per play allowed. Something I took away from that Green Bay Packers game is that C.D. Lamb is a phenomenal receiver. And whether he's in the slot or on the outside, he can create separation with the best of them. And I know he was having a field day against that Green Bay Packers defense and helped a lot in getting them to that 28-14 to lead. I like him in this matchup as well against a Minnesota Vikings secondary that, yes, Patrick Peterson has had success in and, um, you know, Zadarius Smith is having success rushing the passer. I don't know. I, I still have confidence in Dak Prescott and the Cowboys offense despite some ugly turnovers in that Packers game. I tend to agree with you. Uh, the, the biggest thing that gives you optimism when you're looking at the Dallas Cowboys offense is, is in trying to evaluate this Vikings defense. Who have the Vikings played? I mean, if you look at the offenses that the Minnesota Vikings have played of late, specifically some of these passing offenses that they've played, we're talking about last week they're playing a quarterback with a structurally injured throwing elbow, like a structurally injured elbow on his throwing arm that we're not even sure if he's going to play. Then you're playing two of the worst passing attacks in the NFL right now. You're playing the Washington Commanders, who ranked 27th in efficiency, and the Arizona Cardinals, who ranked 29th in efficiency. And by the way, the Arizona Cardinals were down multiple starting offensive linemen. I think like th three-fifths of their starting offensive line were out for that game. And Washington's up in that game. And Minnesota's, or sorry, Arizona's putting up like 26 points on you in that game. Prior to that, you have a bye week. Prior to that, you're playing Skylar Thompson, who got forced into the game because Teddy Bridgewater was concussed on the very first snap of the game. So that doesn't count against the Miami Dolphins. And then you're playing the 26th ranked Chicago Bears offense, which is not anywhere close to what the Bears are running right now. We'll talk about the Bears momentarily. The, the Bears were running the old school offense that they started out the season with, where Justin Fields was on pace to be sacked a record rate that no quarterback since at least 2000 has been sacked at a 16.7% clip. That's what the Chicago Bears offense was doing. And prior to that, you're playing the number 24 ranked New Orleans Saints. So to recap, you're playing four teams that rank in the bottom 10 in offensive efficiency, and you're playing Skylar Thompson's Miami Dolphins, which obviously throw that game out. And, and, so you really only play like one team that doesn't rank bottom 10 that actually has a starting quarterback and the guy's playing a game with a messed up elbow and he still still puts up ridiculous statistics in that game. I already discussed from a Vikings perspective how those statistics looked bad for the Vikings offense. Well, I mentioned that the Bills offense was great in the first half, in the first three quarters, was very efficient and produced points and hardly punted, but was turning the ball over. Uh, so I don't have a lot of confidence in this defense. That's what gives me the most confidence in the Dallas offense. Now, Dak does have substantial home road splits. And the other thing here that's going for the Vikings that we haven't discussed is, speaking of home road, they played two straight games on the road. Now they are returning back to their dome. Not only were the games on the road, they were outdoors on the road. And we know that Kirk Cousins plays better in his home environment. We know that the Vikings produce better offensively in their home environment. So I'm intrigued to see how this game uh, ends up going. But I do think that the Dallas Cowboys, um, the, the lone concern I have for them in this spot is just the letdown factor. And I don't know if you can measure this, but they spent two weeks clearly working and preparing to beat the Green Bay Packers. 
And it's one thing if you end up finishing that job and then you have this momentum that's going on through the rest of your schedule and you have to go to Minnesota here and play the Vikings. But the fact of the matter is that was a gutting loss for them, for their head coach. I mean, the players were coming out in the week before that game, talking about how much it meant to them, how much it meant to their coach. And they're going to put every effort into this and they're going to squash the Green Bay Packers. And then they end up blowing the lead and losing that game. And I do wonder just from a psyche perspective, how quickly they can get back up for a very good uh, Minnesota Vikings team. The one thing that I guess could spin my opinion a little bit though, is that the fact that the Eagles lost, that opens the door a little bit, not just in the NFC East, but the overall playoff picture here for the Dallas Cowboys to get back on track. You are uh, 100% right to call out that the Vikings defense has not played you know, a lot of really talented passing offenses. And they haven't even performed well against those passing offenses. This Minnesota Vikings defense in 2022 ranks 28th in yards per play allowed, 26th in defensive success rate, and 17th in points per game allowed. Like playing against a Skylar Thompson, playing against a bad Saints passing offense, playing against Josh Allen, who's hurt. Like this defense, though, it has come out big in certain spots with a Patrick Peterson interception here and there. And that has been where the defense has won. It's a lot of these like small clutch moments in the fourth quarter, but four quarters across multiple games, across now like what, a 9-10 game sample size, you're seeing this Vikings defense well below average in terms of defensive success rate, well below average in yards per play allowed, and offensively, a team that struggles on obvious passing downs and struggles on early downs because they're running the football at a high rate. That's why they're one and a half point dogs at home despite being an 8-1 football team that just beat the Buffalo Bills. That's why. Like any of these Season-long metrics, any model that's factoring in efficiency offensively and defensively is looking at the Vikings as an average to below average team. And that's why you see where this is. And I probably wait betting on this line, knowing that there's money coming on the Vikings and there could be more coming on the Vikings as we get closer to kick. If you see the Vikings get down to one or a half point or this becomes a pick em, I think that's where I start to look at the Dallas Cowboys as an opportunity uh, um, if, if more money comes on the Vikings. I think that, that I, I'm probably leaning Cowboys in this spot. Maybe not betting them right now as a one-and-a-half-point favorite, and I think like minus 125, minus 130 on the money line, and probably waiting until you see more cash thrown on the Vikings as a home dog with an 8-1 and record. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next game is Bears at Falcons. Falcons are three-point favorites at home. This line has jumped around 
Uh, the, the look-ahead line was a, a, a lot different, and even the, the preseason line a lot different. But the Falcons right now are three-point favorites at home against a Chicago Bears team that I know they've lost a lot of games, but if you ask any Bears fan right now how they're feeling, it's probably pretty damn good. Justin Fields is breaking records every single week running the football. He is having a lot of success in scrambles and design runs. That doesn't mean the receiving core is any better. That doesn't mean the defense is any better. But it looks like Matt Eberflus, Ryan Poles have something to build around in Justin Fields. The Lamar Jackson comparisons, I think, are fair because Fields is the only quarterback in the NFL that's able to affect the running game like Lamar Jackson right now. You could argue Kyler Murray is as athletic, but he's not used that way. You could argue Josh Allen's that, that athletic or that powerful, but I don't think he has the speed that Fields has. I think Fields and what he's doing running the football is rare, like similar to Lamar Jackson rare. And I think that's going to allow for a Chicago Bears team in 2023 with over $110 million in cap space and a lot of draft capital to build around a really talented, rare quarterback. As for now, offensive line still has concerns. Khalil Herbert's not going to play in this game. He's injured. And defensively, it's been a porous defense that also traded away two of its best defenders in Robert Quinn and Roquan Smith. So Chicago Bears aren't punting on this season, but I, don't, I, I understand why, despite the field's hype, they're three-point dogs against what has been a more successful Falcons team that I think got downgraded too much in an ugly primetime spot. I still think this Falcons offense is really efficient. I still think they can run the football. I don't think Marcus Mariota is as bad as he looked in that prime time against Carolina Panthers. I don't hate this line, Falcons minus three, especially at home. W what's your read uh, on this game initially? My read is like, this is almost like a deranged Spider-Man meme. It's like a Spider-Man meme where like the two Spider-Men are in like the multiverse and they're slightly different, but they're both quite similar because if you look at who these teams are, we got the number 31 and the number 32 ranked teams in pass rate. These teams just want to run the football, like the two most run-heavy teams in the NFL that want to run the football. They both have some of the best third-down offense in the NFL. They both rank number seven and number eight in third-down offense this season, and they both stink defending third downs. They're number 29 and number 31 in third-down defense, So, and they're both very slow to boot. So you've got these two run-heavy, slow teams that are more than happy to get into third and manageable against defenses that are terrible in these third and manageable situations. Um, I almost think this game just comes down to who makes the mistake, right? Like They both have unique run schemes that are different from one another. And the Bears obviously rely a lot more on their quarterback to run. The Falcons, you know, I, I guess from a pure pers uh, upside potential they are at a detriment with their quarterback. Like Fields has the better arm and is a better quarterback, but Mariota has the better receiving core that they just don't utilize. A, because they don't throw it enough. B, because Mariota's passes are too inaccurate often and they don't get to the receivers. So like, it's either it's either one of two things. Either Pitts is running open and Mariota overthrows him or Mariota hits him, but Pitts drops it. Like it's been a very frustrating combination. I don't even have Pitts on my fantasy team. So like I can't imagine the people that do watching these games. I do agree with you though, to some extent, that I think last week's game against the Cardinal, uh, the Carolina Panthers was a bit of an anomaly because it's impossible in NFL history for a team to play another team in a closer time span than what the Atlanta Falcons played the Carolina Panthers. They played week eight, had a week off of playing from playing each other, and then they played week 10 on Thursday. 
So it's not even like, uh, remember the Ravens played the uh, Cleveland Browns and there was a, both of them had a bye. And so they both played one another in back-to-back games separated with a bye. But I don't believe that that was a Sunday to Thursday. I think it was Sunday to Sunday. Like it's impossible to play unless you played Monday and then Thursday, a game closer than what these two teams did. And the Falcons were playing out in the rain. And obviously the offense looked looked terrible in that in those conditions against a defense that was intimately familiar with what you were trying to do because they just played you a few days ago. Um, it just wasn't a great situation for the Atlanta Falcons. That said, like, they need to come out faster and stronger in this game at home. Um, I'm expecting to see long drives here. I'm expecting to see um, like it's going to come down to who converts in the red zone. Now, the good news, the good news for the Atlanta Falcons here is that the Chicago Bears have been terrible defending red zone rushes. Uh, they rank actually dead last defending red zone rushes over the second half of the season, the, the I think week five onward. Uh, and they rank 29th in red zone defense since week five, just overall red zone defense on an EPA per play r- perspective. So yeah, there is some upside here for the Atlanta Falcons to get their offense back on track inside of the red zone. I did like the fact that the Chicago Bears were running Justin Fields a little bit more on early downs, but I mean, I, I think this is going to be very much, at least from what I'm expecting here, what you've seen is what you're going to get. I don't think either of these two teams are going to do something creatively on offense to, oh, wow, we're going to really attack this weakness of your defense. I, I think they're going to enter this game with the similar approach. We're going to run the ball. We're going to try to force you into mistakes defensively. I think both these teams are going to get run over to some extent. The who wins, who covers the spread, does the game go over or under, is entirely going to depend on ultimately mistakes inside of the red zone, whether it's turnovers or field goal attempts or you know converting touchdowns. I think that's where this game comes down to because I think both these teams should be able to move the ball slowly but efficiently enough between the 20s. I also think the injury report is going to be huge for this game. Obviously, the Atlanta Falcons over the last few weeks have been without their two stop, you know, two starting cornerbacks. And I don't know if Terrell or Casey Hayward are going to be back for this game. And that makes what is already a bad defense significantly worse. And we've seen that over recent weeks, how bad the Falcons defense has been. And for Chicago, stopping the run has been a challenge for them. Stopping the pass has been a challenge for them. And it didn't get any better when they traded away Roquan Smith and Robert Quinn. I think both there's a reason why the total on this game is as high as Chargers Chiefs. It's 49 and a half. And I think if you look at certain spots, you'll see Chargers Chiefs at 50, 50 and a half. Even with how much we know the Falcons and Bears are going to try and run the football, this total is high because these defenses suck. And I think that is, when you have a, a total this high, like you said, in a line that's only at three, where you know, you're expecting a lot of these teams to get into the red zone, to get into high leverage situations, which team makes the fewer mistakes is probably going to win this one. And, and I think that's why, honestly, I look at this Atlanta Falcons team. If this line, because of the field's hype, gets down to two and a half, I'll probably stay away from it three. But if it gets down to two and a half and the Bears get, you know, or getting another half point there, I, I probably like the Falcons here because I think it's an overreaction to how bad the Falcons played in primetime against Carolina Panthers. I, 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 and Falcons coming off a little bit of extended rest, obviously playing on Thursday night a few weeks ago. So I, I, I like the Falcons in this spot if the line gets down to two and a half. I probably don't touch the total, but if you can still find numbers at 50 and a half, I might take the under because I think it's going to be sloppier than people expect and they're going to be running the football a lot and, and, and that obviously leads to time clicking down 
as we progress here. That's not to say that Justin Fields hasn't had a lot of success. I just don't know if the Bears going to Atlanta are going to be able to defensively hold what I think is a better, you know, a, a better, more consistent offense that we've had over the course of the season. Now, are there frustrations with Mariota against Carolina Panthers? Absolutely. I, I think it's a bounce back spot for him and a bounce back spot for Arthur Smith. I, li- I like the Falcons if it gets down to two and a half, and I'm probably taking the under if it gets down to 50 and a half. Do, do you have a read on should the Arthur Smith bench Marcus Mariota? I don't know. I know that's different than the betting perspective, but I saw how frustrated he was talking about potentially benching Marcus Mariota when, when people were bringing it up and, and wanted to focus a lot of the blame after that Carolina Panthers loss to the team. And I think he's right. Like, if Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons, came in and said, hey, I, I want to punt on this season and I want to see what we have in Desmond Ritter, that would make more sense, right? But like, for Arthur Smith, he still sees the slim chance of making the playoffs. He still sees the slim chance of winning the division, right? And he thinks that, and I think he's right to think that, Marcus Mariota, who's not the quarterback of the future, they know that, still gives them the best opportunity to do that. I think he's top 10 in EPA per play when kept clean this year. The offense is, I think, seventh in efficiency over the last five weeks. Like It has been good. Don't allow a disgusting, vile performance in primetime on a short week against Carolina Panthers push you to pulling the plug on the season. I don't know. I, I think Arthur Smith was right to kind of you know, put his foot in the ground and say, we're not, you know, we're not switching quarterbacks at this point. We still have an opportunity to go, you know, go make the playoffs. Now, if they lose another game or lose, you know, lose this one and lose another one, then you start to look at, okay, let's see what we have in Ritter. But I don't know. I, I think Smith is right to kind of put his foot down there. Well, I, I agree completely with respect to he thinks he's going to make the playoffs or like they're still shooting. They've got life that they could make the playoffs here, of course. Yeah. And secondly, he feels probably potentially from an ego perspective, that he's designed this offense well enough that it's going to limit the impact of any quarterback. So like you don't need uh uh 27, you know, 2007 Tom Brady back there. You don't need a Patrick Mahomes back there to operate this offense efficiently the way that he wants to operate this offense. He's designed this thing to rely on the ground game, to to convert third downs, to hopefully be efficient inside of the red zone, although uh, they do need to improve that. They're still ranked 10th inside in, in my red zone blend of um, efficiency metrics to be productive in those situations to get you to the point that you are. And I think that he probably feels like so. So some from the outside might think, oh, well, that's a perfect situation to insert a rookie quarterback. And it is when you need to get to that position. But I think that he thinks he can do more with this offense still like he's got broader strokes to paint with this offense with a quarterback like Mariota, who's a vet, who's experienced, who can get to more things, who has a better catalog of what we want to do than a rookie where Smith would have to dial everything down a little bit and sort of condense what he's trying to get out there on the field, in my opinion. So while I do want to see Ritter, I can understand for the next couple of weeks, you know, that, that we are going to see uh, Marcus Mariota and keep in mind the Falcons have one of the last buys that any team has. Their bye week is week 14. So very likely that, you know, we got three more games here. If they rattle off two to three wins, boom, we're going to keep see Mariota through the end of the season, maybe. But if they drop some of these games, I think that there's a good chance that Arthur Smith would change his tune. The one thing I'll add is you had a Detroit Lions team with Jared Goff and his small hands playing outdoors in the cold. That was a great situation <laughs> that favored the Chicago Bears. It should have helped their defense. Their offense should have been useful against a terrible Lions defense. Like that game outdoors 
was a perfect spot for you. And they lost, they ended up, you know, not being able to win that game. Now you're going to a spot that's going to obviously favor the Atlanta Falcons because it's indoors. They, the Falcons just played on the road in the rain outdoors. Now they're coming back home with extra rest to host you. Like, yeah, I mean, if the, if the Cow, if the Chicago Bears couldn't get it done last week, it is going to be a challenge for them to get it done this week against the Falcons, even though the Falcons did not look good last Thursday. I'm waiting to see if the fantasy football community comes in droves and bets on the Bears to get this line down to two and a half. Because I could see the public close to Sunday unloading yes. on Chicago and in a dome, Justin Fields, oh my God, and this line getting to two and a half too. And that's when I bet the Falcons. I probably stay away until I, it gets to that point. And I, li- I like the under. I know it's in a dome, but I, these teams are not going to be throwing the football a lot. I, I, and that, I know, even though the defense is so bad, I think that that's a bigger, a bigger, um, a bigger reason why this line has already moved from 50 and a half to 49 and a half with some money going on the under. All right, last game of the slate here. No, not of the slate, but of the podcast. Bengals at Steelers. I wanted to bring this game in, even though the Steelers are like a real long shot to make the postseason. Yes, they're coming off a win. Um, you know, this this past week of the New Orleans Saints, who were like, man, we could have a whole podcast on the New Orleans Saints. That pass rush is one of the worst pass rushing units like over the last five, 10 years. Can't create pressure to save their lives. Made the made the Steelers' offensive line look like future Hall of Famers. And Pickett, who has struggled all year long, I brought up multiple stats about how Pickett has really struggled throwing down the football field in non-obvious passing situations, still was able to you know, secure a win. And that Najee Harris and Jalen Warren were able to find success running the football. Like That was a really worrisome, worrisome game for the state of the Saints roster, if I'm being honest. They might have to make a quarterback change. They might have to make uh, a lot of changes to, to, to rally out of the hole that they're in. And they don't have the resources to do it unless Sean Payton, you know, nets them multiple first round picks. I don't know where the bright side is. And is Sean Payton, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but is Sean Payton going to net multiple first round picks? And we just saw an analyst from ESPN's get up, get brought into Indianapolis to win a game. I don't know. Like is, is, is coaching value down? Is Sean Payton's value down after seeing Jeff Saturday win in Indianapolis? I'm not trading two first round picks for a coach after seeing Saturday, you know, come off the street essentially or off the TV set to win a football game. I, I'm, that's not to discredit how good Payton is and all that stuff. But man, trading a lot of picks for him would be interesting. Anyway, Bengals at Steelers is who we're talking about. Steelers are four and a half point dogs at home. This has pretty significant playoff implications for a Cincinnati Bengals team that has one of the toughest remaining schedules to, to, for, for the end of the season. Like they are right now, according to 538's model, a 47% chance to make the postseason. And I think this might be the easiest game remaining on their schedule. They got the Steelers on the road, only a four and a half point favorite. Then they have to go to Tennessee and take on Mike Vrabel and the Titans. Then they host the Chiefs, host the Browns, who they know are no slouch after getting beat 32 to 13 in Cleveland a few weeks ago. Then they have to go to Tampa Bay to play Brady, go to Foxborough to play the Patriots, host the Bills, and then host the Ravens. This is objectively the easiest game they have left on their schedule. And that means if they lose this one, their playoff odds, according to 538, go from 47% to 25%, dropping them to just a quarter chance to make the playoffs. So this is a must-win situation for Cincinnati Bengals at Pittsburgh. And I think they win pretty handedly here. I, I, I like Cincinnati against Pittsburgh in a revenge spot after, um, obviously, a, a letdown loss in week one at home. So my lone concern with the quick handicap on this game relates to the fact that TJ Watt is back and that the Steelers when they've had TJ Watt, are playing over 50% too high. And the reason why that's a concern for the Cincinnati Bengals is 
when defenses play at least 50% too high against Joe Burrow this season, he is 0-4. When defenses play at less than 50% too high against him, he's 5-0. Defenses have used, uh, when defenses use too high at a 50-plus percent clip, he's never scored more than 20 points and has averaged 17 points per game. That's been against the Steelers in Week 1, the Cowboys, the Cleveland Browns, and the Baltimore Ravens. When defenses used below 50% too high, the Bengals have scored 27-plus points in every single game and are averaging 32 points per game. And that's against the Carolina Panthers, the Atlanta Falcons, the New Orleans Saints, the Miami Dolphins, and the New York Jets. Now, the other thing that should, you know, as I'm bucketing these teams, should ring a bell is, as I'm mentioning, like the Falcons and the Saints and the Dolphins in the same sentence there. We're talking about just some bad defenses in general. Um, but that's going to be the biggest factor to me as I'm thinking about this game is now there's no Jamar Chase. Yes, I know they looked great because they could run the ball down the Carolina Panthers' throat before their bye week. But are we going to be able to see that against the Steelers who have a top seven run defense? And, you know, uh, pulling some nuggets here from Rich Rebar, who, by the way, uh, the fantasy worksheet that Rich does every week, he breaks down every single game and gives previews. All that's free up at Sharp Football Analysis. Every, everything on the whole website, in fact, this week is completely free. So Google Sharp Football Analysis. You can see the blue bar at the top and you can get access to all this stuff completely for free at the website. And, the, and his breakdowns are incredible. But the Cincinnati Bengals are really problematic um, when they're going up against this too high shell, which is what I think the Steelers are going to be utilizing a fair amount here. And I think it could limit the upside of what this Bengals offense is going to do. I like Mike Tomlin to be able to kind of try to slow down this team. The issue is, can Kenny Pickett hold up his end of the bargain? Can Kenny Pickett not make mistakes and do enough for this offense to try to score enough points here against a Bengals team that keep an eye on that injury report, whether or not they're going to get DJ Reader back. And that will change things dramatically for this run defense. And we saw how Pittsburgh ran the ball a lot on the Saints last week. If they can't run the ball a lot against these Cincinnati Bengals because Reader is back, I mean, that's going to put even more stress on Kenny Pickett. I, I, I think that Lou Anarumo with a bye week to prepare for Kenny Pickett in this offense is scary. <laughs> Lou Anarumo Lou has been yeah, phenomenal that's a mismatch. this season in, in, in game planning. And even without Cheeto Awuzie, their top corner who's out for the season, I still think that this Bengals defense has an edge over, over Kenny Pickett and what this offense is capable of, right? I think he is going through a lot of rookie growing pains, has a bad offensive line, and has no running game to show for it. And I think the Cincinnati Bengals, especially with DJ Reader back, are going to be able to suffocate this Steelers offense. And even with the Steelers, who are, you know, with Mike Tomlin leading the charge there, probably going to limit the Bengals more than we saw them against Carolina, more than we saw them against Atlanta and these like scoring barrages. I still think they're they they have the edge over Pittsburgh and that this offense has more talent. Even with Jamar Chase sideline, Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon, T. Higgins, Joe Burrow, obviously, who if you look at the Ringers quarterback rankings, is the sixth ranked quarterback according to Steve Ruiz. I think he's a top 10 player in this league, top 10 quarterback in this league for sure. I like Cincinnati. With the extended rest, obviously coming off a bye, in a revenge spot in Pittsburgh to win this game. Now, betting in a divisional game where the Steelers are four and a half point dog, that's tough. It's tough to, to take the points with Cincinnati. I'd love to see if this line gets down to four or three and a half and, and, and we could start to maybe look at a better teaser leg here. I'm not taking Cincinnati minus four and a half. 
but I do like them to win. Because they know better than anybody, better than me, who's listing five, 538 playoff odds, that this is the easiest game they have left. If they lose this one, it's over. Because you're not going to win that murderer's row of a schedule where you gotta where you gotta host the Chiefs, the Bills, the Ravens, go to Tampa Bay and play the Bucks, go to Tennessee and play the Titans. You're not gonna win all those games. As good as they are, if Chase is back, I think there's rumors that he could be back by week 12, you're still not gonna win all those games. So I I, I do worry that. Winning this game, irregardless, doesn't give the Bengals an opportunity to make the postseason. But they, I do know this, and they know this, I'm sure. They lose this one, it's over. And, they, and they're on the outs. I don't know if that necessarily puts Zach Taylor out of a job. I, I think there are some people who say they wish he could because the offensive play calling has been extremely conservative. But man, they are going to look for some changes. If the Bengals, after going to the Super Bowl, miss the playoffs entirely, I don't think heads roll necessarily, but they're going to have to look at the staff and the roster to, to make some changes to obviously get back on a, on a playoff and Super Bowl track. Warren, always fantastic when we get our, our minds together to break down the NFL slate. Make sure you tune into the rest of the feed. Tomorrow, you're going to have Raheem and I going over Thursday Night Football. That's Titans at Packers. Packers favored by three. And then Roger and I have been ripping up college football every single week. My TCU Horn Frogs continue to deliver, not just against the spread, but on the money line. They got another big game this week. Two and a half point favorites over Baylor, I believe, on the road. It's going to be a treat. Make sure you tune in to the rest of the feed. Big shout out to our producer, Mike Wargon, Connor Nevins, Steve Cerruti, everyone producing on the Ringer Gambling feed. Until next time, Austin Gale, Warren Sharp, the Ringer Gambling Show.